0: Hi, I'm Paul Ford, and this is Track Changes, the official podcast of PostLight, a digital product studio in New York City at 101 Fifth Avenue. And I'm joined by my co-founder, Rich Ziade. Good to see you, Paul. Good to see you too, Rich. So today we have a hot political show for
1: our listeners. Rich, who's on the show today? Well, when you say hot, you make it sound sexy. I mean, these are two good looking guys. They are pretty sharp looking. Uh, We have Marco Carboni. And Daniel Kahn Gilmore. But wait, what organization are they from? Well, I was, that's, I was trying to build some suspense here. They're mm. from the ACLU.
0: The American Civil Liberties Union. Oh, you got deep there for a I second. Know. Well, it's a serious organization. It's been yes. around for 97 years. Marco, hi. Hey, hi, you doing? Thank you for being here. Daniel, hi. Hello. Where do we even start with what's going on in the world today? What? Well, first, let's, let's, let's hit pause. <laughs> Give you, them a minute. I know. You guys have jobs. You do things. You work for the ACLU. Yes. Marco, let's start with you. What okay. is your job?
2: I am Associate Director for Internet Technology, so I manage the technology side of all of our public-facing websites, the online fundraising and advocacy platforms, and all the data that comes into that, and how that gets stored in our databases, and, and how we use them.
0: Oh, so you're a gatekeeper for an enormous amount of money.
2: Uh, yes, in a sense. That's only been true most <laughs> fairly recently um, it, there's always been an active donor base, what we call our members people who give to us um, through the online uh, website or through you know snail mail but yes, do people still send in checks? They do so when we you know we we recently uh, gotten a lot more attention than usual um, since the election and after you know, after the executive orders and the uh, court orders and the ACLU being in court, our immigration rights team being in court, we saw a huge surge in online donations and then also um, on our desks, we have pile and pile of snail mail that we have to sort through as well. So it, these, it comes in at the same
1: time. These are good days at the ACLU. So
0: did you well, crash?
2: Did everything stand up as
1: as you were getting this massive uptick in, in usage?
2: I can talk a little bit about that. Not everything stood up, um, but we did pretty well. We Good. We, yeah, and, you say things are good at the ACLU. They are good at the ACLU, but also terrifying at the ACLU at the same time. I mean, we're we're doing our work. We're all like our heads are down. We're, yeah. Um, but it's also you know a, a very challenging time for us to figure out you know how to. Act in this environment. I mean, we're, sure. d- we're that we're out there. We're like first responders, um, but yep. for the Constitution, that's kind of how we see ourselves. Yeah, but uh, it, you know, that's so, a
0: great phrase. You're first responders for the Constitution. Yes. So I didn't come up with it, but yes. right. So it's like someone you're like Secret Service. You jump in front of the Constitution when somebody wants to attack it.
2: Yes, or other yes, but yes. So in terms of donations and members and and, and the public, uh, you know, reaching out and being active and thinking about the ACLU and thinking about how they can be involved. And what we're thinking about, yes, things have been very interesting and good.
0: So Marco, you're there making sure the website's up, making sure the money can come in, making sure it all works.
2: Daniel,
3: what do you do? I'm a senior staff technologist within the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project at the ACLU. Mm -hmm. Um, So that means I'm a policy-oriented technologist. Uh, I'm not responsible the way that Marco is for the, the upkeep of the organization, but I'm rather looking at questions about the intersection of civil liberties and civil rights and technology. So I end up with a bunch of different responsibilities in that role, but that means that I evaluate Internet standards um, and advocate for them to be improved with respect to privacy, surveillance, censorship kinds of concerns. And I also um, interact with uh, lawyers and lobbyists on staff to try to make sure that they're aware of the technical issues that are going on and that our briefings and filings have basis in technical fact. So I try to bring technical concerns to those lawyers, help them understand the details more and more of our litigation and lobbyist concern, lobbying concerns have to do with the way that the the tools that we're using uh, are being used and who has control over them um, and then also try to bring ACLU's civil rights and civil liberties concerns out into the broader technical community uh, making sure that we have better defaults on the software that's out there, making sure that people are, are aware of what some of the trade-offs are that are, that are being made as our communications
0: infrastructure continues to evolve. What is an issue that you're working through now? Like, what's an example?
3: Um, I can give you several different examples. What's what's uh, at the top of the list? Like, what's top of mind right now? So we talked earlier about sort of the immediate crises that are going on as we see the, you know, civil rights and civil liberties concerns being kind of shredded. Um, A lot of the work that I've been doing is more long-term facing. So not in some ways, I, I'm not an immediate responder on those things. But I have had, in terms of p- very high urgency things that have come up, people come to me and say, we're trying to organize to protect people. We're gathering data in doing that protection. How do we do that in a way that's safe? And so I've been working with a bunch of people to help them start to think through information security questions at a level that they haven't thought them through before. So some of that kind of um, response is to like walk people through I mean, I don't necessarily know what risks they're trying to avert. So I need to talk to them to find that out and then reflect that back. through. When you
1: say them, who are you talking about? Um,
3: I've had lawyers come to me both within the ACLU and outside of the ACLU who are working to um, uh, try to defend people who are being unjustly detained, wanting to know, um, you know, they're gathering data about people who've been t- who, who are in delicate situations and they want to make sure that they're gathering that data and collaborating with other people. For example, down at JFK, as the, as the travel ban hit, there are a bunch of lawyers who went out to volunteer there. Mm-hmm. Well, lawyers create a bunch of documentation about a bunch of people working with people who they haven't met before. So I've been asked by a lot of folks who are in those positions to try to help them think through some of those risks. That said, that's not my primary focus. That, that kind of, Marco mentioned, being a first responder. I'm not a first responder <laughs> so much in that, in that sense, but the fact that I understand what some of the technical trade-offs are puts me in a position to try to help in those cases. In sort of longer-term pictures, I've been working on things like the transport layer security protocol um, so TLS is you might know better by its its older name SSL, um, but that's the thing that puts the S in HTTPS. When you go to a secure website connection, yeah, um, that's just the web over TLS.
0: And so for the listeners, that's when you put in a credit card and it's got a you know a little the the URL bar gets a little green thing on it. That means everything's encrypted going back and forth. You're, your regular HTTP web connection is not encrypted.
3: That's right. So I've been involved in standards work around defining new, the newer versions of TLS um, and trying to deprecate older versions that we know to not be as secure, to not offer the same kinds of guarantees that you would like to have um, this, this, this protocol offer. Why does the ACLU care about this? Well, uh, we care because the communications infrastructure that you use has an effect on the kinds of social interactions that are possible, right? So if the only way that I can communicate to you is a mechanism that's completely surveillable Mm -hmm. and is completely surveilled, then that's going to color the way that I interact with you. It's going to change the way that we can communicate. It's going to change the intimacy of our conversation, and it's going to change um, even whether I'm willing to reach out to someone potentially. Sure. I mean, we're having a
0: conversation right, right now that's public. And this we're, is, this we're is a t- surveillable conversation, yeah.
3: and it's intended to be so. Exactly. Exactly. Right? But
0: we're all behaving in a certain way right? And, and might say things a little differently than if we were just talking one-on-one and nobody was listening in.
3: Right. And our fundamental rights, rights freedom of association, freedom of expression, freedom of thought um, – you know you build your thoughts in the basis of communication with people who with with private communication and so if our communications can't actually be private um, or if we are concerned even that the communications are not private that there's a potential for for a, a very serious chilling effect and a, a a weakening of public discourse so the
0: paranoia even if you aren't being listened to the ACLU and, and you in particular are concerned that the paranoia uh, would limit people expressing themselves if there. Are, I mean, and it's a justified paranoia in that people have been spied on and massed in
3: America, and people have been spied on in targeted ways in America too, right? right? Let's you know, let's not forget. I mean, I, I'm. Much of my work involves pushing back against mass surveillance, but I also want to make sure that we can push back against targeted surveillance too, given the history of targeted surveillance against dissenters and and activists in this country, and outside.
1: People today seem to be completely comfortable with even though they're on a secure channel, their audience is in the hundreds. In fact, in many cases, don't even know how big their audience is. For example, in Facebook, your audience could be your friends, but if others, if your friends like it, it gets out to their friends. In a sense, people are just being a lot more cavalier about sharing what they think. Actually, they don't really know what the boundaries are at this point, which is, I guess, less of a technical challenge and and more of a... An education or social one? Um, how do you deal with? I mean, what are What's what is the stance? What's the position on something like a Facebook, where they're doing the job technically, but the the reach and the the ability for information to sort of spread is sort of up to Facebook
3: in a way. Right. So, I mean, I think I, I would always hesitate to say that any of these problems are specifically technical versus social or educational. Like many of these things, or, or legal for that matter. These yeah. things are. It's it, there's a mix. Um, and all of the factors sort of influence the other ones, yep. which makes it sort of complicated to tease them apart. Um, with Facebook, there's a bunch of different ways you could approach that question, right? So one thing is that it's not clear that Facebook has done a good technical job of explaining the scope of your speech on tech, on Facebook, right. right? So as a user, you could argue that it's a technical failure that the user doesn't know who's going to be reading that post because it hasn't been properly communicated to them. The tool hasn't provided them with the information they would need to make an informed decision. On the other hand, maybe that information is so complicated that no one would be able to understand it anyway. I
1: think it's probably is.
3: No, you know, I don't think so. I think everything that we do
0: was incredibly complicated 10 years ago. And we have UX design patterns and understandings that have arisen over the last, you know, decade or so about what an app should look like and, and what a website should look like. It strikes me that if the same amount of attention and diligence was uh, was applied to privacy, like you could have an icon system where it's like, "Hey, you know, you're talking to this many people, and there's a lot of little dots in a circle," and over time, everyone would go like, "Oh, I'm in, engaged in a kind of public speech yeah. right now." Like we don't, the tools tend it's to. It's not a
1: priority for Facebook. No, to no, it's not. That, right? It's not. I mean, yeah. My mom, when my mom comes up a lot on this podcast for various <laughs> reasons, when she first started using Facebook, she asked me to bring home some coffee beans. On Facebook, she didn't know that that message to me. She didn't know that that essentially got broadcast on her wall to all her friends. Did you did you bring home the? I brought I brought the beans home, but I think that's honestly the platform works great for her. It it, my but another part of it is I think even if you do communicate it by the way I think there's such an addiction to the virality of what you put out that people uh, I think. My mom knows today that her stuff gets liked a lot and shared a lot. And I think for a lot of people, this sort of conscious uh, self-policing has kind of been watered down such that we don't care. People but, don't seem to care as yeah, much. But I've, I've never Even se- if you gave them that graphic, do you think they'll care?
0: I've never seen any organization truly try to communicate your level of privacy at a given moment on a platform. Right? No, that's that true. Is a That is a design task. I mean, I would love to take that design task on right like that it's is a h- it's a yeah, it's, it's a challenge. A challenge. It's a real challenge, and we don't
3: and we don't have a good vocabulary for it right now. So there's a cultural component to this, right? People need to learn what some of these things mean. So there's an educational and cultural component, yeah. And then there's a real engineering task of how do you present that in a way that's not overwhelming, yeah, um, and is and communicates what needs to be communicated.
2: And there's another aspect to this, which is it's not just what happens on the Facebook platform. I mean, Facebook is all over the internet, right? Anywhere where there's a Facebook like button. Facebook knows when you're looking at that web page. Mm-hmm. So even if you're not someone who's registered as a Facebook user, they can surveil your online behavior depending right. on how many people are using that. So this, right. it's not just about when you're communicating to people. It's just looking at the web.
0: Actually, this is a great moment because we can pin you down. I gave $200 to the ACLU. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm assuming I have to go to a camp five years from now. With all the other people who gave two hundred dollars to the ACLU, but what, what happened to that data? Like in your world, Marco, I'm on now on I'm on a list because I did that. Yes, and it's the list of people who are going to get mailings from the ACLU, which is incredibly intrusive. I mean, look, there's there's,
2: <laughs> there's, there's, there's actually historical. You know, I, and I, I'm not an expert in our in our history, but you know, in the 1950s, the McCarthy era, this was something that people sure. wanted to hide from the public. Like, are you a member of the ACLU, right? I mean,
0: card carrying, right? It uh, actually yeah. is a joke in our culture yes. that it's just such an archetypal lefty thing and it's a wink and a nod.
2: So yeah, of course we still think about that. We still think about protecting our members' data. We don't give that list out to anyone. Of course, people are also more freely willing to talk about it. People say on Twitter, like a lot of the fundraising that happened during the um, the uh, travel ban executive order weekend where people saying, hey, I'm raising a lot of VCs, actually. I'm, you know, match. I'm raising $150,000 yeah, that. Yeah,
0: like Fred Wilson and yeah. Chris Saka and, and people like that.
2: So all those people that responded to them, of course, now we know that they're, you know, supporters of the ACLU and people are more willing to talk about that on social media. But if you don't do that, if you just go on our website and you type in your information and, and it goes into our database and of course you can look at our privacy statement we talk about you know how we share your data how we give to third parties because there are third parties involved you know we, we use systems like Salesforce to, to store that data and we have a you know a vetting process for security like any large nonprofit would do
0: it's fascinating right though because it's it's you're in the middle of this and you're using Salesforce, which is just this like giant company. As you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, of course I use Salesforce. Everybody uses Salesforce for, for managing relationships in the hundreds of thousands. Sure. Like yeah. But no one in, out walking down the street is saying, ACLU, a happy Salesforce customer, right? But you're you and every other NGO and every other org like this has to participate in the big world
2: in order to thrive. Yeah, you know, we were talking about this, Daniel and I, before. Like, there is a tension, you know, between the work he does and the work I do. Sometimes, like, right? Where are we putting our data? How do we grow as an organization and support our members in a way that doesn't completely buy into like the digital surveillance state? Sure. And we think about that all the time. We we make decisions. Um, It's probably not at the level that Daniel would want at at all times, but I think we think about this a lot more than most large nonprofits. There are other nonprofits out there like EFF or, you know, that think about this stuff very aggressively. It's like what they do. But the ACLU is a multi-issue organization. Technology Mm -hmm. and privacy is not our only issue. We've got, you know, I can list them, LGBT rights, racial justice, you know. So there's more. Not everyone in the organization is thinking about these things all the time, like, Daniel and myself are more often. Well, and you're.
0: I mean, that's the thing. The EFF, that's the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Like that is an organization that is, like, as purely of the internet and as purely of you know, they they are really kind of represent the hard line on things like digital rights management and you know, access to cryptography and so on. You
3: you guys have a broader mandate. I I wanted to point out that the the digital privacy and anti-surveillance and anti-censorship work actually. While we're saying this is one of the issues that the ACLU covers, it's actually related to many, many issues. Jr.: sure, it's a substrate, right it could, it's, it's the new digital layer of free speech absolutely, and it's, you know if we're talking about a, you know freedom of religion, if there's a Muslim registry that's going to be built, it's going to be built using these tools. It's going to be built using the data that's extracted from the surveillance economy. Now right? Here's the
0: tricky thing. We, Rich and I have talked about this, and we just assume that the Muslim registry already exists in variety of forms, right
1: It can be plucked from Facebook. I mean, I'm I'm of Lebanese descent, and I've I have family members that are not American citizens that travel in. And during the Obama administration, it was not unusual to find ourselves waiting an extra 45 minutes for them to come out with their luggage because they a knew all their travels. This wasn't just about stamps on a passport. They they their systems. I think in the last, it feels like the last. Five to 10 years got upgraded to the point where they knew they knew the trip from lebanon to uh italy even though it had nothing to do with the united states they somehow had that record the other thing that was happening was she i mean detained sounds dramatic but it wasn't unusual for her to get pulled in for a bunch of questions on her way in and you know, they were kind of weird, cryptic, unusual questions. At, uh, and then they
3: let her out. And, and, and you say detained sounds dramatic. And, and, you know, and you also said, you know, we had to wait an extra 45 minutes. I can imagine some people listening to this are like, ah, oh, 45 minutes, you know, whatever. So that's like a extra long lines at the coffee shop. Yeah. But I have to say, as someone who's been held in in the secondary screening, even if it's 45 minutes, Five minutes into that, you don't know that it's going to be over in 40 minutes. And right, it's a very true. different experience. No, right,
1: right. I guess, I guess what I'm getting at is, is,
3: is this really new? Well, no. Did this really it, kick in two weeks ago, right? We, I mean, there, there is, a, you know, we have a long history in this country, both of um, impressive civil rights and civil liberties activism and of really uh, discouraging um, problematic overreach by, by government making people unwelcome. My, my own uncle, uh, great uncle, was actually p- uh, blacklisted and was, I um, had to flee the country. Um, he was a Hollywood screenwriter and he spent five years, his entire family, his children, wow. um, fled to Mexico um, because they were being targeted by J. Edgar Hoover. So, I mean, we, this is not that long ago that that sort right. of thing was happening. It's not, it hasn't been particularly, right. you know, abated since then.
2: And it's not new for the ACLU, right? This is why we were ready for this moment, the moment that we're currently in, is yeah. because we were doing this work during the Obama administration. We saw what was coming during the election, so we were you know, ready on day one. To act the way we've been acting,
0: but during the Obama administration, was like, "Oh, come on, guys, yeah, it's chill fine, out. relax."
2: But we know that's not true, right? Like that, this, this, you know, maybe it's not at the surface in terms of how President Obama was speaking, but what you know, what's happening, you know, at the federal government level in terms of TSA and the deep, deep security state. All those things are still happening. It's just not as it wasn't as present in everyone's minds until this happened.
0: And so now it's all it's it's coming to a head, right? Like we're Suddenly, we have the president, who makes people aware of civil liberties and care about them in a very personal way, and we have narratives about people being
3: detained and and people's, you know, just
0: sort of their basic security being at risk. And I mean,
1: blessing
3: in disguise, no? Well, sure. I mean, when you said this is these are good times for the ACLU and this that early question, <laughs> right? Like, in in some sense, yes, this, these are good times because the issues that we care about are yeah. actually visible to people. But it's yeah. bad times for the ACLU because the issues that we care it's about amplified. are very much at yeah. risk. Yeah. You know? Well, it's
0: also, this is not like a little constitutional trickle. This is a constitutional tidal wave of right. crazy. I mean, it's it's a lot. So you have to react to that. Now, Marco, how did you experience the sudden uptick? Like, you're sitting there, you're the guy who's in charge of the web stuff.
1: Wait, can I ask about before the uptick? Like, sure. what did you think was coming your way... After the election. Like, there's no uptick yet, right? But
2: I'm going to admit something, which is I scheduled a a two-and-a-half-week vacation after Election Day. Smooth. Yes. Well done. Did you go? I did. Where'd you go? I went to Southeast Asia, you know, but I was making phone calls from Southeast Asia. (laughs) Wow. Uh, I left two days after the election, and yeah we immediately saw an uptick in, in donations actually on day one and then I would imagine on day two after the election it was our biggest online fundraising day that we'd ever seen. okay um, and that was the day of my flight. so I left and I you know my but you know my team my whole team worked on it, my supervisor came in and was covering for me so it was it was amazing. but the website held up. I mean we we were ready for it you know we've it's a website, it's a content management system. We'd done load testing, all that kind of thing, but we'd only load tested based on the donation counts we had seen in the past. Okay, And on that day we saw I think, 10 times or, you know, 15 times our biggest day ever, which is like the last, you know, typically like near the end of the year.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's good for listeners to know like, that order of magnitude increase is when things break. Like usually yeah. things will kind of like keep going for two to three times as much as you sure. do, yeah. as your worst case scenario. But when it hops up 10 times or 100 times, yeah. everything melts.
2: So when it melted is actually when um, our executive director went on to uh, Rachel Maddow. And he, he, you know, he's he's very uh, effective in what he does, and he got people really riled up. And it was a very emotional period. What's his name? I'm his sorry. name is Anthony Romero. Anthony Romero. Okay. Um, and so we had some issues that came out of that. Our site went down for about eleven minutes when that. This is like, when?
1: Happened. When did he go on?
2: This was like November, third week in November something like okay, that. Okay, so I was on vacation during that. Okay. Um, so we noticed. We looked at like you know new relic and that kind of thing. We say okay, like we have some slow queries that are causing problems. We brought in some people to kind of you know. Some hired guns, and we did some quick work, and
0: so you looked at your analytics.
2: We did. Okay. We looked at our analytics, and um, we were did some load testing, and suddenly we could handle a lot more. Okay, um, and we were sort of you know ready, but we still had some issues that we were working on, like you know other parties are now getting involved in terms of bottlenecks. Um, so then the uh, inauguration happens. It's a big day. We handle it fine, and then the executive order comes down. On that Saturday, when we were in court in Brooklyn, right, we had this victory. We walked out of the courtroom. Everyone, was, on, everyone on social media is talking about us.
0: It was a great legal moment. It really was kind it, of yeah. extraordinary. It yeah. was
2: beautiful. Um, I mean, it was, yes, it was, it was a historic ACLU moment, historic national moment, all these people at the airports. And our website saw huge amounts of traffic, except this time we were ready for it. We knew that we had a, a limit that we could handle, and we had a fail-safe ready to, to trigger as soon as it happened. It happened. We turned on this fail-safe. Everyone was, you know, through this, our CDN, Everyone was redirected to a static page with a PayPal link, and that was up for about 10 minutes. We took a bunch of money through PayPal. Things calmed down. We went back to our site. So we we were ready for it, and we're still working on being even more ready. So PayPal is
1: watching the Eastern District of New York... Well,
2: very closely
1: But here. they can handle it. PayPal can handle <laughs> it. No, I know, but I'm saying But PayPal right. also makes a big on, on all those transactions. Do so so you yeah, guys have a special non-profit relationship with PayPal? They have
2: a non-profit thing. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not our preferred way to take these donations, yeah, yeah, but, but it's better than a 500- than on your face. Yeah, yeah sure. So. Okay, so you, yeah.
0: have, you have your regular website. It runs along, runs along, runs along. And you literally flip the switch here. I mean, not a physical switch, but you said, all right, put the one up that is a simple static page and let PayPal do all the weird computational stuff because we know we can host a million of those an hour and it's yeah. no big deal.
2: Yeah, as long as we needed it. We, we're just looking at the CDN. Things calmed down a little bit. Site went back up. We're good.
0: Oh, and we should, for listeners too, That's a it's content distribution network, right? Okay. Yeah. Yep. So a CDN is a place where you put stuff uh, and it actually distributes it around the internet so that it gets to everybody's computer really, really fast. Most big sites use CDNs in some way or another for images or so on. So this is a way to ensure that somebody in Minneapolis is getting the closest, fastest, quickest version of ACLU.org that they possibly can. Want yeah, yeah. to
1: give a shout-out to the CDN? Sure, yeah. it's Fastly. They're, they're great to work with. Oh, yeah, with. they uh,
0: are. Great. We've worked awesome. with them, too. Yeah. We really yeah. like Fastly. Yeah, it's, I think that's our first like corporate shout-out. I love that it's from the ACLU. I know, right?
2: I'm a nonprofit yeah. shell. Oh, yeah. endorsed by the <laughs> ACLU. That no, is exactly... It was a big
0: moment, I mean... <laughs> But that's cool. what that's what every startup wants.
2: Is the ACL? Yeah, this is easy them. to find. Anyone can go look at you know an IP address and find this stuff out. Yeah, so. right,
0: right. Okay, so you you got your plan. You knew you were ready. Yes,
2: we were ready for that, and we did. Yeah. I mean, we we stayed up, and uh, you know this is public. We raised twenty four million dollars that weekend. That's a hell of a online.
1: And, and you typically raise on an annual
2: basis. Um, I'm not the numbers guy, but it's a lot lower than that. I think it was. I don't know. Ten million for the entire year, maybe. I
1: heard less than that. Maybe less
2: than that. Maybe it's like.
1: I heard three or four.
2: That might. That might be.
1: Right. Yeah, which is. I mean, that's that tells you, that is one heck of a weekend. It was on over a weekend.
2: Over a weekend. Of course, we continued to see strong traffic. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Very cool.
0: Okay, so just so now it's interesting too because suddenly the web is the is the dominant way to get money into the ACLU. Is it? Was it before were most donations coming
2: online? No, I mean, of course, we are, you know, we get grants, we have private donors, you know, it's, it's a mix of sources. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not the, the you know, fundraising sure. numbers guy, but yes, I know that uh, online has never been the largest piece of the pie, but all of a sudden, it's a pretty darn big piece of the pie.
0: You know, it's, um, it's also just a good object lesson in that you have your site that gives people a good experience and explains what the ACLU is, but there is a part of the web that is just dumb and simple and you, it has—it's like three components. It's like your CDN, your PayPal link. You can make that work, and right. and that is a way to scale. People don't always think about that. They think about like how can I have fifty servers that will host this simultaneously? And this is a much more, in some way, just elegant way to do it because you got it down to bare bones. It's just like oh my god, we we can't deal with this this level of attention. So let's do something incredibly simple
2: most people don't think that way they think let's
0: complicate the system that we have
2: well and we do have a lot of complications involved involving like how we reach out to people by email and you know how do we handle uh one time versus monthly we have a different sure. mobile experience like we actually don't uh expose paypal as a payment option unless you're on a mobile device because they they take a, a bigger chunk so but we know that on a phone it's a lot easier to push a button and you're automatically mm-hmm. logged in to donate so we we think about all these things I mean, these are front end things, a lot of them, but there's a lot of complex thinking behind our fundraising platform that I work with our fundraising, online fundraising team with. But yes, ultimately on a weekend like that, it just, it's the bare bones, like get to a form, fill out some uh, fields, push a button. That's all that needs to work. It's
0: a good feeling.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It had to be a good feeling. It was, you know, it was a, it was a very good moment. I mean, it wasn't. Were you refreshing that PayPal account? uh so <laughs> i was actually out of town that weekend what is the aclu's know, vacation policy i know this right is... <laughs> <laughs> my this time is up. but i was i was i was and i was at a place without wi-fi but i was on my cell phone <laughs> thankfully work again working with my amazing. where were you this time i was in the Catskills, so a lot closer <laughs> uh working with i know i feel like a playboy on this this podcast. is so great um, so I was on my phone, like, working with my tremendous team. They were, like, doing – they're ready for the failsafe. They're looking at all the, the stats. And I realized when we set up this PayPal account for the failsafe, I never – I directed all the uh, transaction emails to my inbox. <laughs> just, so I'm sitting in this house. Uh, my my phone suddenly says 6,000 emails. I can't even actually see the emails that people are trying to send on me. On your
0: crappy Catskills Wi-Fi? Yes. Yeah, no, no. I was on a, I was on a wifi. phone signal. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, even better. It
2: was like – think it was 4g but anyway so that's what i was dealing with that weekend
1: so that part of the plan
0: maybe,
2: uh, no
1: maybe sympathy for guy. yeah well
2: look i mean it, it, we were ready for it uh, no, i'm not good. the i'm not the only person in yeah. front of us.
1: team effort laptop, team so. effort guys yes. while i'm in the cat skills team effort <laughs> <laughs> the question i have
0: is um what's the what's the stack we should be using to communicate like how do you guys communicate
3: what are the tools oh boy um, so i mean Different people have different choices and different people have sort of different um, requirements. So I'm going to give you the the classic it depends answer, Mm -hmm. but I can tell you about myself personally. Yeah, what do you use? Um, So as someone who does a lot of work investigating the sort of um, surveillance and social control aspects of communications platforms, I really don't like them. So I don't have a mobile phone. Not at all. um, I, I have a laptop. I'm a Debian developer. It runs Debian. Um, for the listeners, that's a, um, a
0: very old and respected Linux distribution. That's also the the root of the Ubuntu Linux.
3: It's the root of I think 350 <laughs> other just distributions as well. For yeah. a second. I just wanted to get yeah. in there on that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you have your,
0: your <laughs> Debian laptop. This is starting. Are you? You know, this is starting to get Stallman esque here. So, um,
3: so no phone. <laughs> oh, Marco's nodding and laughing. <laughs>
2: oh well, because Stallman is someone who often contacts me about the ACL. You bet I can talk about that. Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs>
3: so so um, I've actually had a conversation with Richard Stallman where he asked me whether I had a mobile phone uh, because he was trying to get into a talk he was going to give. And um, and I said, I, uh, I'm sorry, I don't. He said, that's good. You've made the right decision. But right now I need to find someone who has a mobile phone. <laughs> so, it's, it's, the real world is very
0: complicated. Uh, it's, it's
3: complicated, <laughs> right? And, and, you know, um, but... Uh, so most of my community, I'm, I'm a contributor also to the GNU PG project mm-hmm. um, and to the Enigma project. and So these are all um, encryption tools. These are encryption tools. So so in terms of my personal communication, I rely pretty heavily on internet-based stuff as opposed to mobile phone mm-hmm. um, things. And then I prefer encrypted communication where possible, but I also do a lot of public communication. And that communication doesn't need to be encrypted, obviously, in the same sense that this podcast is a yeah. easily surveillable thing. But so yeah, so most of most of my communications platforms are pretty standard internet-based platforms, with the exception that I happily accept and will send to people who want it um, encrypted communications.
0: And do you uh, have an opinion on the new sort of secure apps that are floating out there, like Signal?
3: Yeah, um, so I actually use Signal desktop. Um, okay. It's registered to uh, my own phone number. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a big fan of the simplicity of those apps sure. um, in terms of, I mean, I see the ways that we have as a community, and by the community I'm talking about the, the encrypted mail community failed for the last 20-something years. It's true. It never caught on. It uh, never did. It's simply not, it's, it, it hasn't caught on because it's not actually usable in the way that people use mail. Sure. Um, and one of the nice things about these new apps is that the developers of these apps have an opportunity to just say, forget that you're using mail. Don't right. bring any of your male expectations with you. We're going to give you something new, and by default, it's going to be right. Okay. Um, and so, I'm actually I'm a big fan of what Signal in particular has done. Although there are still um, there are still some questions. Uh, I'm I'm concerned in particular about the centralization of uh, routing messages. Sure. That's, that right? Signal. There's a single server, and all messages are routed through that. Sure. Um, that puts now they are encrypted when they're they routed are through. encrypted. That's that's right. So what that means is that the, the operator of Signal, which is Open Whisper Systems, um, which is Moxie, Marlinspike's group, they can see the metadata of all of the messages. So I'm concerned about the content. And in fact, encrypted mail has never done anything about the metadata either. And it hasn't really taken off. So Signal's a win in multiple ways. But Signal still leaves as a problem the fact that the metadata is all centralized. Mm-hmm. So that means that the operators of those servers can see who is speaking to who. They can see when they're speaking. They can see what size those messages are. Because of the way the Signal protocol works, they can also see whether the messages have attachments or not. Mm. Um, And, of course, with Signal, all of the identifiers are bound to telephone numbers because that's the way that Signal bootstraps its authentication and its address book scheme. So as a result, they have the potential to be sitting on top of a metadata map of who is communicating with who and how much and who gets responded to and actually, if you look at sort of social graph analysis, that's actually a particularly powerful way to evaluate what's going on. There's a great post, um, and I'm forgetting the guy's name, but it's called something like Metadata Analysis of the American Revolution. So,
0: Oh, um, it's about Paul
3: Revere. i yes. read this. Yes. Finding, finding Paul Revere. We'll,
0: we'll dig it up and put it in the links below the post. Yeah, yeah.
3: So that's a great example of like, OK, I don't even need to know who – I don't need to know what people are writing. I just need to know who's connected to the different groups. Right, which tells a lot. Which tells a ton of circumstantial evidence It tells a lot. And actually, with the timing information, that also tells a lot. I mean, Uber did a thing where they published, uh, I don't know if you remember this, I think it was last year or the year before, they published data sets that they called Uber's Rides of Glory to demonstrate that, and I forget whether L.A. was getting laid more than New York or New York was getting laid more than L.A., but it was basically like how many people are calling Ubers at 3 in the morning in these different cities? Oh, goodness gracious. Um, so that's a terrible idea. <laughs> that
0: was an awful idea by Uber. I U- mean, it's Uber? an yeah, awful idea. I know.
1: General, generic information. Um,
0: <laughs> um, this is something, as I've talked to other computer scientists and, and security folks, like, you ask, how you know, how can I be truly secure? And everyone just sort of blinks and is like,
3: well, you can't really. I mean, it's. I mean, I think the right response to that is that security is a process and not an end goal, mm-hmm. right? And and in, and even with more nuance, the se- the security question you have to ask yourself: What are you trying to secure, right? right. And similarly with privacy, right? C- to be completely private means you have to not talk to anyone. Privacy is a relational construct. So, right. I mean, I want to be private, but I still want to communicate with people. Those people could break my pri- like they could violate my privacy by sharing things that I've shared with them. Well, it strikes it's right? me
0: that it's just incredibly hard to keep secret that one party is talking to another party?
3: Well, there's actually a bunch of interesting research going on in, uh, there, there's there are several trade-offs that are involved with making something like that possible, but there's a bunch of active research. So um, I'm involved with the Tor project. Sure. Uh, Tor is the onion router. It's an anonymity network that allows you to hide your location on the network. Right. Um, and that's coupled with a browser that's basically a Firefox derivative that has additional privacy-preserving features turned on There's a lot of things about the way that the web itself, the standards of the web are architected that can leak information. Mm -hmm. And Tor Browser is probably the browser that's the best out there at minimizing those leaks. So the Tor Project, um, they produce a browser, you can just go and install it from torproject.org. It's called the Tor Browser Bundle. And if you run it, it'll be a web browser. It'll look like Firefox, basically. And it allows you to communicate on the network without whoever you're communicating with knowing where you are on the network. It doesn't provide complete anonymity. And again, this is like, what are we trying to secure, mm-hmm. right? If you log into Facebook through Tor, which you can, and mm-hmm. which Facebook encourages. Facebook actually has a hidden a hidden service, a, what they call an onion address, where you can go to Facebook directly through Tor. So you never leave, your communications never even leave Tor and go back onto the normal internet. They just go straight to Facebook. If you log into Facebook, of course, you're not anonymous to Facebook, <laughs> right? Uh, but they don't know where you are, and your traffic isn't visible at any of their public network endpoints. The reason that they put that there is because there's a lot of things that anonymity like that can provide on the network. It doesn't just provide you with the ability to hide from people who might be surveilling you. It also provides you with a way to circumvent attempts at censorship, another core ACLU value. So we think that's, you know, it's it's an important thing to have these kinds of tools available so that people can route around people who would like to constrain your ability to speak. Got it. Security is hard. It is, but that doesn't mean we should give up on it. No, right? we should not give it's, up on it. There, there are steps we can take to make things better. And and the reason I think that we have failed at email encryption for the last 30 years is a, is a posture that I call security nihilism. And there's a lot of great papers in in academic literature that say such and such isn't secure because of this corner case. Mm-hmm. And they're right. It's not secure because there's a corner case. And you could attack it and exploit that corner case. However... Might be expensive to attack that corner case, right? And so the security nihilism posture is like, "Oh well, we can't adopt that because it's it's been known broken." But hey, it's way better than clear text. Can we just like move? Sure. You know, raise the ball, bo- raise the floor sure. at the very least. So it should cost a couple hundred thousand dollars to crack it instead of zero dollars. That would be, that would be right instead of just sending them the message without them having to do any work. Anyway. Right. So
0: it means it means that the person who wants to look at your your data has to do some work.
3: Right. I, I can give some examples of specific technical projects that are taking that approach. We call that opportunistic security, um, which is just like raise the floor mm-hmm. without trying to replace the stuff that's supposed to be fully secure. Mm-hmm. Um, Where do you guys stand on warrants
1: being issued that allows for, okay, you know, I, I need to see what's on your phone. I have a search warrant.
0: Um, I'm sure the ACLU is totally for this. I'm sure this is like their favorite thing ever. <laughs> this
1: Because, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm nodding at everything you're saying and in support of everything you're saying, but there's a there's a point where there's a logical breakdown around search warrants. and Like, you can't, as a police organization, go take a battering dam, ram to anyone's house. But if you show enough evidence to a judge, they're given a search warrant yep. and can do that. Here, so, it's nearly impossible, right? Even if they got the
3: warrant, the state of the data doesn't allow for it to be unraveled? Um, well, that depends on, on what data we're specifically talking about. Again- Well, right, let's
1: not get into the data part, but
3: where do you stand? Let's, so so I'm not a yeah. lawyer, yeah. Um, so I'm not prepared to give you a deeply legal answer, but I will say a few things about the warrants. First off, there's been a bunch of attempts to search these devices without any warrants whatsoever, and those are clearly, clearly unconstitutional searches. Right, agreed. So there's also been a number of cases where search warrants or subpoenas have been issued by judges who haven't been fully informed of what they're actually granting access to. So there are a number of constraints you would like to have for a warrant. A general warrant is a warrant that allows you to search basically anything. It's not a specific and focused warrant. And we have a long history in this country of saying that general warrants are a bad idea and they're not allowed, right? You, you can't just, like, the king can't come in and say, sure. here's a piece of paper that allows you to ransack any house you want because you're looking for sure. a certain thing if I get a warrant to go search your house for a particular type of contraband, I shouldn't be allowed to search your house for other kinds of contraband, for example. Mm -hmm. The trouble with the phone is that people are being granted warrants to search the device when the device actually has far more information in it than if you go back even 40 years, what would you have in your filing cabinet would be a, a fraction, a tiny fraction of the data that's available on your phone today. right And a warrant to search the filing cabinet would have been would have specified the document you were looking for in the filing cabinet. Not like sure, go on a fishing expedition through the filing cabinet. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of warrants that I think have been issued without the sense of scope that we would expect from a from a warrant because the technology isn't actually well understood by the legal system yet. So part of my work has been to try to help lawyers and judges understand those trade-offs.
1: Okay, so you do feel like there are, with proper scope, warrants should be, warrants can be applied such that you could get it at the information inside of a phone.
3: At some of the information? I mean, I I believe, you know, there, there are legal... I mean, it's a search
1: a search warrant is for searching, right? I'm going to see some other stuff. I'm going to see your kids' pictures... Um, you happen to be the shooter, and your phone was left in the car. And I want to see if there are any accomplices, but I'm going to see some of your kids' pictures. I
3: mean, it's just human well, sensory you, well, human, <laughs> intake, so, right? This, so this is a really good point, right? We're talking about human sensory intake. And, in fact, the way that a lot of these, act, these digital searches are done is not at all with human senses, right? right. These are done with massive machine ingestion right. and potentially indefinite retention with no sure. clear, sure, like, sure, so, sure. okay, so I get to search your device. Right. What am I allowed to take off of it? What am I not? What am? How much of that am I allowed to keep? And we don't have, I think, a good set of rules and guidelines around right. that. Right. Uh,
1: really quick. I want to get uh, – Marco, your thoughts on this.
2: Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm – like, like similar to Daniel, I'm not a lawyer. I, this but it's fun. Cornering the ACLU guys is fun. It is no, fun. no, no, I feel like I should have I I know the guy to They're call. They're well armed though. <laughs> no, look, the ACLU is not against the concept of warrants, period. I mean, sure. right, that's like we're about like right. how you know the Fourth Amendment exists. Yeah. That's what we're trying to protect. And all the things that Daniel's talking about yeah. applies to that. What is reasonable? search yeah. and seizure, and right. that's what we talk about. Right. That's the that, fine line, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the That's my the non-lawyer
1: rope. answer Question, to that. but correct me if I'm wrong, just so I understand. Signal, you can, even if the way it works, you couldn't get anything anyway. Well, who's Is you that true? and what are
3: you getting it from, right? If I if I have my phone, are you telling me I can't read the old messages that I got? I mean, I don't have no, a phone, but, but if but I they, have, again, I'm speaking purely from a technical perspective. They can't decrypt it anymore. Isn't it gone? So let's say that I send you a message via Signal. Yeah, that message, if I go into my signal application and I go look at the history, I can see the clear text of that message. Yeah? Oh, if you, I get you, at the phone, you mean? Well, you and can it, set an
1: expiration, however.
3: You can set an expiration. Whether that works properly depends on what versions of signal the different right, parties right, are running. Right. and this. Oh, but, I'm thinking but, yeah.
1: about like subpoenaing signal. I right. need Daniel's chat. Right. He, they can't even get it. No. Right. That's right. They can't right. get the, the con- way they technically.
3: Can't, they the can't get works. the contents of that chat. Right. Right. And right. Right. to to Signal's credit, again, to, um, the Open Whisper Systems does a very good job of not even keeping any metadata. There was a case recently that okay. where Open Whisper Systems worked with ACLU. So there's lawyers. nothing to subpoena. Nothing that's to, that's the whole goal, right? That's is the to, goal is to have
1: nothing to subpoena. Got it. Got, right. it. Got it. Interesting. Well, we fell into the deep side of the pool here, Paul Ford. <laughs> we did. We did. You know, Fascinating. Really, really interesting, actually. Because it intersects. I'm a, you know, I, I'm a former attorney and technologist, and this intersects so interestingly for me. Uh, so this is all about me being entertained, Paul. <laughs> here's,
0: what I, here's what I'm curious about, because this is a show about how people do their jobs. You have very different jobs.
2: Very different. Yep.
0: So let's start with Marco. Marco, what do you do all day? You're on vacation a lot.
1: Let's back off. I
2: have not been on vacation since that moment.
1: (laughs) Okay.
0: Those two moments when you were on vacation. That was a weekend. Oh, really? No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay.
2: Yeah, so you know, I we have a team of in-house developers that manage our you know www.ac.org co- you know content management system, our online uh, fundraising platform and advocacy platform that's like action.ac.org. What platforms do you use, by the way? Um, I am an old Drupal guy. Sure, that's really normal for for NGOs. A no. lot of it NGOs is, use, you know. yeah. Yep. And actually, one of the w- one place where Drupal really comes uh, one of its strengths come to fore is. Um, our affiliates we have so we have uh, 54 affiliates through um, all the states uh, three in California Puerto Rico DC they're all their own um, organization um, their own legal entity um, they all have their own websites but national sort of manages uh, some technological services for them like you know email sending and the online platform so we manage a website a, a Drupal distribution that it's called that can be used by all as many affiliates as they want so we have over thirty affiliates that are going to be on this by this year. Cool, and we can kind of manage that. So that's you know that's the thing that we're doing in house with the developers. Mm-hmm. We've got this the Salesforce thing I mentioned earlier. We're, that's actually happening right now. That we're moving to that. So that's a big project. So I'm kind of working on that. You know, pro- projects keeping the websites running. That so kind you of thing. sort of yeah. you,
0: you have two customers really aside from you and your bosses. You have the affiliates. Mm-hmm. who may or may not, you need? You want to make attractive software for them to use that makes it easy for them to be an online affiliate of the ACLU. Mm-hmm. And you have the users and donors who you want to reach out to in meaningful ways in order to get them to Engage with the ACLU and ultimately maybe give you some more money too.
2: I mean, those are the big, two big audiences, and then we have people that just come to our website to read a blog post, right? Mm. They're not necessarily supporters. A kid doing a book report. Or... Um, we have, and then we have to think about actually our impacted, uh, like our, our potential clients and our clients. Like we have Know Your Rights resources on our website, like you know what to do when you're stopped by the police. Uh, what are your rights at a protest? What are your rights as a photographer? So we provide those materials. It's, it's kind of a service to the public.
0: So you're, you're juggling these users whenever you're making a change.
2: Yeah, and then there's the internal, like, communications teams, fundraising teams. Yeah, the legal team.
0: Um, yep. So this is actually an interesting moment, too, because, right, like, when the pressure was on the site and you went down to the, the simplest possible version – it sounds – you know, somebody thinking could be like, well, you know, that's – that's why don't they just st- stick with that? Like, why don't they just use that? But there's all these other people who need the site at any and, given time.
2: And by the way, I should say it, it wasn't the www site that went down. It was the fundraising site. So, oh, yeah. landing yeah. So page. Everything yeah. was still kind of there, Yeah, um, all the information. Makes but, sense. And there's other things besides donation forms. We have petitions, we have legal intake. All that stuff was kind of down for those 10 minutes. So, gotcha. yeah, we can't be in that situation. Sure. Yeah.
0: Sure, because that is one of the ways you provide service. Mm-hmm. Okay. Daniel, what about you? What's um your day?
3: So, I have a bunch of different things that happen during the day and I can just give you some examples of the sorts of things that I might do. Um, so in some situations I end up consulting with, uh, with a lawyer who has a specific technical question that they're, that they're working on. So a question about one example of, of a, a, a case that we've brought recently is Wikimedia versus NSA. Mm-hmm. So that's a lawsuit where Wikimedia has been surveilled by the NSA. It's out of scope for what the NSA is supposed to legally be able to do. And some of the lawyers in that lawsuit are ACLU lawyers pushing to try to get the NSA to stop doing upstream surveillance. Upstream surveillance is where they basically monitor Internet backbone links. Um, Why would the NSA be interested in? NSA me? will suck
1: anything into
0: the, its th- their, their motto seems pipe. to be collect, collect it all. <laughs> <Yeah>. right. Right.
3: <laughs> um, and so if they can get Pokemon, their hands on a pipe, sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, they actually literally do have the slides that say collect it all. Right. right. Okay. I mean, it, it's not just Pokemon. It, this is actual. Like, for those slides, please. Policy. We'd like to include
1: them in, as a link at the bottom <laughs> yeah. of this podcast. Uh,
3: <laughs> if, if you search NSA collect it all, you'll find the slides. I'll, They're we'll, on the we'll public web. The wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it's it's even worse than collect it all. I forget what the other verbs are, but it's basically like analyze it all. You know, we got the title for all. the podcast. Paul. Collect um, it all. Collect it all. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I'll talk, you know, I'll, I'll spend some time working with the lawyers who are working on that case to help them understand yeah. what is upstream surveillance, how would that be implemented? And in some ways, you know, it's it's a challenge because we're working within what can we present to the courts that the courts will accept. You can't go to the NSA and say, excuse me, are you using um, deep packet inspection devices? And if so, what model? They'll say, national security we won't we won't tell you sure um, but so helping the lawyers understand what the range of ways you could do upstream surveillance are and make sure that they can have a, a, a clear argument that they could then explain to a judge
2: I want to say that he also goes to standards conferences which I, is right? like
0: honestly when you're talking to me and rich that's that's normal behavior yeah okay yeah. rich once ex- wrote a Standard to extend RSS. Yes, amazing. I went yeah. to an XML conference that I've, I snuck into
3: because I was so into XML. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm the, the odd money. I'm
2: the odd man out here. <laughs> yeah.
3: So so yeah. So another example is I'm I'm going to be going to um, uh, the Network and Distributed Systems Symposium, Network and Distributed Systems Symp- Security Symposium, NDSS. Mm-hmm. It's an uh, Internet Society conference that is on the West Coast. Um, there's a session specifically about DNS privacy. So this is an example of an internet standard that I'm working on is the domain name system, which underpins most of your ability to use the network. Sure, I translate- just call it the internet's phone
0: book, right? Like it's, it's a way to find another computer.
3: Right. Um, it actually it turns out there's a bunch of other things you can do with the DNS besides just name to address lookups, but that is by far the dominant thing that people use it for. That is a old, totally non-secured protocol. And then there's a couple of security elements that have been added to it over the years that are not particularly widely adopted called DNSSEC in particular. Mm-hmm. And those security elements provide you with authentication, but they don't provide you with confidentiality at all.
1: Hmm.
3: So when we're talking about metadata earlier, if you imagine that every time you look something up in the phone book, you revealed, even, even if you didn't make a phone call. You looked it up. If you just looked it up, then sure. anybody who happened to be nearby could tell, you, could tell what you were looking up. That's a little bit disturbing. Yeah. And so there's a group of folks who are working on DNS privacy extensions and some standards, and this is again, it's an opportun- like we have an opportunistic model, we have a more secure model that would prefer to fail than than have the opportunistic right. uh, so, right. so we're looking at how do we do this in a way that's deployable and how do we, um, and, and what are sort of the trade-offs? And so I'll be presenting at, at a DNS privacy workshop within NDSS.:
1: Very cool. Well, wow. wow. This was a different podcast and a very enjoyable one. Agreed, agreed. Let's, um, well, let's, let's thank our guests, first Well, let's of all. do that, yeah.
0: Marco, you. Daniel. You know, um, if anybody wanted to get in touch with either one of you, uh, how
3: would they reach out? Well, you can't get in touch with Daniel. Forget sure, that. You, sure you can. Um, get home, home address, Daniel. My, Go ahead. <laughs> my, my, my handle is just my initials. I'm DKG pretty much everywhere. So I'm DKG at ACLU.org. Oh, You can cool. send me mail. I have an open PGP key if you want to send me encrypted mail. Okay. Um, but yeah I'm um, DKG at ACLU.org. Yep.
2: Cool. And, and I'm Mcarboni at ACLU.org. I also yeah. have a Twitter okay. presence that's very light.
1: You guys seem open to sharing them, we'll put them into the mm-hmm. into the uh um, sure. show notes. Cool. Great. And your social security numbers? <laughs> 1234567. <laughs>
0: All <laughs> right. Well look, I guess we should tell the people out there in the world of podcasts that this is Track Change is the official podcast of PostLight a digital product studio, we build your apps, we build your APIs and your platforms. Um, we do it for everybody. We do it for banks and media companies and NGOs, and uh, we like doing it. My name is Paul
1: Ford, I'm a co-founder. And I'm Rich Ciardi, the other co-founder of Postlight.
0: And if there's anything you want, you just send an email to hello at postlight.com, hello at postlight.com, and we will reply. We like getting questions, we like giving advice and talking about the work we do. Feel free to get in touch, and we hope that you will go to iTunes and give us a good rating. But mostly we're just excited that you listened, and we'll gladly receive any feedback, good or bad. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let's go to work.